Welcome to the podcast of Medora Pentecostal Church. We are a growing community of believers committed to bringing hope and building lives. We pray today's message is a blessing to you. Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3 and verse number 15. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15. I hope I do not offend you tonight, but I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> There's a particular reason why I am um, that will probably become more evident a little bit later on uh, as we as we go. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I am going to be talking to you tonight, uh, tomorrow night, and uh, probably one of the services on Sunday on the topic of living a questionable life. Living a questionable life. Father, we thank you today for this people. We thank you because they belong to you. And because they belong to you, they are great, Lord. I'm asking you to speak your word tonight. Speak through me. Touch my mind and my mouth, Lord. Give me understanding and utterance. Speak your word and we will not fail to give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. I'm not sure what you are expecting this to go like, but I'm just going to, uh, by the help of the Lord, work my way through 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15 uh, from several different angles over the next few days. And I don't know if it's going to be exciting or boring, if it's going to be loud or quiet. Amen. I'm just going to um, hopefully follow the Spirit if He will help me. We have all all heard this verse quoted, perhaps preached from, on many different occasions. And we have uh, in this text the phrase in the English Standard Version that uh, we are to be prepared always being prepared to make a defense to anyone that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. And the King James says, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope. And the phrase to make a defense comes from the Greek word apologia, which is where we get the English word apologize or to make an apology. And uh, in theology, <clears throat> the, the term, in theology, the term apologize or apology or apologetics uh, does not carry the same kind of uh, sentiment that we normally think of when we use the term apologize. Whenever we normally talk about apologizing to someone, it's going to them and telling them how sorry that you are for (laughs) what you did to them, how sorry you are for how wrong you were, (laughs) for what you said about them behind their back. 
And this is what we think of as an apology. However, in, in theology and even in, um, even in classic, classical Greek, the term apologia does not mean the same thing, at least not in a nuanced way as we use it in contemporary English language. And so I'm going to be saying tonight, I'm going to be emphasizing tonight that what we need as apostolic Christians is to apologize to the world. We owe the world an apology for who we are. We owe the world an apology for what we believe. We owe the world an apology for the gospel that we preach. And there are many Pentecostal issues for which apologies are necessary to the world. And I, for one, would like to participate in the process. And I hope that by the grace of God, what I say this week and what I teach and preach this week will also inspire some, some, some young ministries in this church to also become more apologetic to the world about what you believe. And of course, as you already suspect, I am not saying that we should be telling the world that we are wrong about what we believe. I am not suggesting that we communicate to the world that we are sorry for what we believe. <laughs> Rather, the term apologia as found in 1 Peter 3 and verse number 15 means to make a defense. It is actually, it was actually a legal term in classical Greek. It was used to refer to the argument in a, in a technical sense that a lawyer would give in court. He would give a defense of his client's innocence. So to give an apology or uh, to apologize in theology is to make a defense for your case. And so as apostolics, as Pentecostals, I think that we need to go on the offensive and start apologizing for who we are. But rather than saying how sorry we are for what we believe, amen, God is looking for a group of people who are equipped to be able to provide a reasoned defense for what it is that we believe what and for what it is that we are. I don't know about you today, but I'm excited to know that there is only one God and that his name is Jesus. I don't know about you tonight, but I'm thankful to have been baptized in the only saving name under heaven, given among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. God needs people, men and women, who are able to make a defense to anyone who asks, to make a defense of the reason of the hope that is in us. And we do, brothers and sisters, have an amazing hope in us. This lesson tonight, this week 
that we will be together will be an appeal for apologists. Apostolics need both men and women who are well equipped to give reasons, answers for their faith and for what it is that we believe. And I'm sure I'm not going to be stepping on any toes here tonight with this. And if I am, your pastor can correct me uh, either tonight or when I'm going, however that needs to work. But too often in the Pentecostal movement, we have relegated theology to the male demographic of the church. Women just show up and cook and sing and clean and do all of that sort of stuff for, for us and for everybody. But brothers and sisters, apologetics and theology is not just for men. God wants to use the women in the apostolic movement to become involved in the apologetics of the church, to become involved in, amen, giving a reason, a reasoned defense for our faith. Brothers and sisters, Peter calls us to be prepared, always being prepared to make a defense in order to always be prepared to make a defense for your faith, then you must be, brothers and sisters, well equipped. You must be well informed in order to be always ready to give a defense of what it is that you believe. I know that there are going to be times whenever, amen, we are not going to have every single answer to every single question that the world may ask of us. But if we are diligent in our faith, if we are diligent in our defense of the faith, you might catch me once, but you are not going to catch me twice without an answer to that particular question. And you don't have to be afraid of any question. You do not have to be afraid of anything that anybody will ask of you concerning your faith. And you don't have to pretend like you have the answer. There was a, there was a pastor my dad was friends with years ago. He's, he's uh, dead and gone now. I hate to, hate to talk about the dead since they're not here to defend themselves, but I'm going to do it anyway. Somebody in his church came to him and asked him, said, Pastor, how do I answer this particular question that somebody at work asked me about who we are? And uh, this particular pastor, friend of my dad and I's, told him, said, well, you know, just, just tell him this. Tell, tell the person this. And he said, Pastor, is that really the answer? And he said, well, not really, but it'll work until I can get one. <coughs> well, don't do that. If you don't know the answer, just simply tell them, I don't know the answer. But I am going to find the answer. And when I find the answer, we will means that every Christian must have in their life. And that is, they need a personal relationship with the Word of God. A personal relationship with the Word of God. Number two, and this is not necessarily pastors in your life preaching the Word of God. And that's why it's so important to show up to every service, whatever your midweek is. 
Whatever your midweek service is, it's important to be in that Bible class. Whatever that Sunday school teaching is on Sunday morning, whatever your schedule is, it's important to be in that Bible class. It's important to hear the word of God. It's important to hear every word of God, amen, that comes across this pulpit because from that word comes instruction that is going to be able to equip you to be an effective apologist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I know anything about your pastor and his preaching and his reputation, amen, I promise you that every answer that you need, amen, to be an effective witness over the, over the years of this church that it's been in existence, you have heard the answer already over the pulpit, preached at some point in your Christian walk. And if you would have been here, amen, to hear and to pay attention to the word of God, amen, that gift, would have already been imparted into your life. Amen. That's the reason why it's so important to be in church and to hear the word of God. And if for whatever reason you can't be present to hear the word of God, that's the reason why it's important to go to the podcast or whatever, amen, uh, method of archiving the preaching that goes on in this church and connect with the vision of the house of God through the word of God. If you will do that, brothers and sisters, amen, you will be well equipped in the word to be able to handle whatever it is that God needs to speak to you. But in addition to that, you don't just need to hear the word of God and then walk away and feel like you have no other responsibility to the word of God. Once the word has been preached, brothers and sisters, you have a personal responsibility to take that word home with you and to engage in that word, to pray over that word, to study that word. So that you can get it down into your heart. God wants you to be a Berean saint. Acts 17, 10 to 11. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea. Who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And that they received the word with all readiness of mind. And searched the scriptures daily. Whether these things were so after they heard the preaching of the word of God, even though it was from the apostles, they did not just take the word of God, amen, from the preaching of the word of God and just let it go with that, say amen to it, and then walk away from the word of God. After they heard it, what did they do? The Bible said that they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Amen. You have a responsibility to the word of God after it is preached. The word of God is not just a one-time event. A, pre a preached sermon or a taught Bible class is not just contained to the 30, 45 minutes or an hour, amen, in which it happened. You have a responsibility to have a relationship with the word of God that after you leave Bible class on your midweek service, that between that midweek and the coming Sunday, there ought to be an engagement in your heart and your spirit with the word of God to where you're going back and you're reading and you're searching and you're praying over the word of God that you received into your life. Search the scriptures daily whether these things were so. 
I believe that God wants a well-informed army of people that are advanced in the Word of God. Being well-informed in Scripture is not just the responsibility of preachers and of pastors. Being well-informed in the Word of God is the responsibility of every individual under the sound of my voice tonight. God wants you to take the Word of God seriously. God wants you to have a personal relationship with the Word of God. Part of the responsibility, I say not just part of the responsibility, but rather the primary responsibility of an under-shepherd is to feed the flock of God. Acts 20 and verse number 28, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers to feed the flock of God, to feed the flock of God. The idea of eating and feeding as it relates to the word of God is one of the more vivid and practical word metaphors in the Bible. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 to 14. For, for through, for though by this time the writer said you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He said, you need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But he said, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by consistent practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, this verse is full of food metaphors that has layers of flavor profiles that are sensational. He compares the word of God to eating, preparing, and serving food. And this, brothers and sisters, is an incredible concept if you will take hold of what the word of God is saying here. The Hebrew writer told of a person whose palate was child, childish and could only handle meat. The problem was is that they should not have been children. They should have been mature. They, they had been eating long enough that they should have been handling something much more sophisticated than simply eating milk. But instead, they were still on milk when they should have been on meat. But instead, they could only handle meat. And when the writer described the mature or the sophisticated palate, he says that that person has the ability to do to uh, eat and to handle the fillets and the ribeyes of the word of God. Hallelujah. Now, I know I'm being just a little bit anachronistic, but the text only says meat, but I can't think of better meat than fillets and ribeyes. So let's let's just make it real tonight. The writer said that some who by reason of use have their senses exercised 
to discern good and evil who by reason of use have their senses exercised. Now he's talking about the capacity to eat and to taste the word of God. Amen. The ability to advance beyond milk to get to meat. What an incredible analogy. Some people, some cooks, some uh, people who... (coughs) are food snobs because they are familiar with certain ingredients and meal preparation can discern between a good and a bad dish. And there are some that can do that with the word of God because they have used the word and are familiar with the doctrinal ingredients. They can and have the ability to discern between good and bad preaching. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, God wants to advance your palate. God wants to train your spiritual palate for the word of God. He wants to give you the ability to taste flavors and textures of the word of God that the average person cannot taste, that they cannot sense, that they cannot handle. There's nothing more Uh, frustrating than for somebody who loves a good steak like I do to go out and eat with somebody like I have and have them order a ribeye well done (laughs) and then literally cover it until you cannot see it with A1 sauce sir You are a reprobate in the name of Jesus. That cow did not give his life to be cooked well done and covered in A1 sauce. You need to repent right now. If you're in this room tonight and I'm preaching to you, you need to repent tonight of that sin in your life. (coughs) In one of the cooking shows on which Gordon Ramsay has starred, part of the competition was for the contestants to blind taste ingredients that were placed before them. Some of the cooks did horribly. Blindfolded, tasting ingredients. Some of the contestants got absolutely every ingredient they tasted wrong. They thought it was one thing when it was something completely different. However, there were other cooks. There were other contestants that got part of the ingredients right and part of the ingredients wrong. When they tasted, they, they knew their, their palate was more advanced than the other people in the, con- in the contest. And so they could tell by texture and smell. All right, all right. 
and flavor what certain ingredients were, but they could not tell what all of the ingredients were. And then there were the advanced level contestants that everything they touched and smelled and tasted, they knew exactly what it was, what it was because they were familiar enough with the ingredients that they knew exactly what it was when they tasted it. Can I tell you that God's looking for a church that's got a sophisticated enough palate in the word of God that whatever doctrine is put before them, they've tasted it enough, they've handled it enough that when they hear it, they know exactly what it is. They know exactly what the ingredient is before them. Some of the contestants, brothers and sisters, they cooked with ingredients that they had never tasted before. They cooked with ingredients that they refused to even taste. God forbid that we raise up a generation of young preachers that are cooking up messages with ingredients that they've never tasted, that they've never handled, and that they, that they have refused to taste. Brothers and sisters, preaching is not one of those things where you throw in just a little bit of that because somebody told you it would sound good or taste good if you prepared that message, amen, with that particular ingredient. Can I tell you, if you're going to prepare the word of God for God's people, you ought to taste everything that you throw in there. You ought to have an intimate relationship with every ingredient that you are placing into a meal that you serve to the people of God. I'm not just going to throw a garnish on it because it'll sound good or look good. I'm not going to cook with anything that I don't know what it tastes like. And of course, in a way that only Gordon Ramsay can do, he told one of the contestants that they had the palate of a cow's backside. <clears throat> you can't taste anything. You have no sense of discernment whatsoever in what it is that you are handling. Let it not be so with the word of God. Our mission and our purpose in the world is way too important for us to not to be familiar with the ingredients of God's word. For us not to know how to handle the ingredients of the word of God. Hallelujah. Who through use, the scripture says, have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. The only people that are ever deceived in the Christian faith are those who have not through use exercised their discernment in the word of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So it's important that we interact with the word of God. They do not know the ingredients, therefore they cannot discern what is and what is not good doctrine. Right. <laughs> Yet there were other, there are other people, other cooks that can not only determine ingredients by tasting them by themselves, but there are some people who have such a nuanced palate 
that even after all of the ingredients have been mixed and cooked together, they can taste ingredients that are hidden in a recipe because they are so familiar with it even though it's covered in other ingredients and flavors. There's people that can take a dish. There are people that are so good with their palate that they can, they can deconstruct a dish simply by tasting it and tell you pretty much every ingredient that went into that dish because of how well through use their senses have been exercised in their particular discipline. This level of discernment, brothers and sisters, requires practice. It requires for you have to have spent some time in the word tasting all of the ingredients of God's word so that you can discern it. I fancy myself to have a broad theological palate. I can discern ingredients in a sermon that allows me to know something about a man's theology by little phrases that he uses. And if, and if a cook's good enough and the palate of the eater uh, is not sophisticated enough, a good cook can hide ingredients in it that the eater says they don't like. <coughs> Make them eat it and love it. And they don't even know it. <laughs> I've done it before. <laughs> Preaching. I've preached in places where I was touching on concepts in a message that I knew the host pastor wasn't completely 100% on board with. Maybe we had a difference of opinion on eschatology. And just a little, just a little dash of something different. And my God, they were shouting and going nuts over it. And what they didn't even know is they didn't even believe what I was saying. <laughs> I just hit it so well. <laughs> and their palate was so unsophisticated that they couldn't pick up on it. Now, as funny as that sounds, this is exactly how people get off course. Yes, this is exactly how people are led astray from the truth. But can I preach to you today that you don't have to be that. You can be that person. You can be that child of God that is always prepared to give an answer. You can be that person who has spent so much time with the ingredients of the word of God that you can hear, you can taste, you can discern, you can sense. Amen. When the word of God is the true word of God. And if there's any little bit of something that's off with the recipe, you'll immediately recognize and know what's missing from the situation. Oh, hallelujah. How many have ever went to your favorite restaurant? You've eaten there 5, 10, 20, 100 times and the food tasted the same every other time, but then you walk into the restaurant on this day and you taste it and you immediately know something's not right, something's missing from this. And you send it back. I was with Pastor Donald Lance 
at a P.F. Chang's one night. <coughs> and they brought out the soup that he ordered. And he took one taste of it and immediately said, oh, this ain't right. Something's wrong with the recipe tonight. Sure enough, when the waitress came back by, he sent it back and he came back out with another bowl of the soup and said, sir, I'm so sorry. We did have a mix-up in the, in the kitchen and such and such was missing out of that last batch. Here you go. Here's, this should be fine. And he tasted it and it was right on point. This is how God wants us to be able to interact with and handle the word of God. He wants your discernment to be so on point. Through having your senses exercised in the word of God. There are three kinds of hearers that are at least implied in the text of Acts chapter 17 and verse number 10. He says that there was the first group that, or the first part of their hearing was, they, they received the word with all readiness of mind. Received the word with all readiness of mind. But that's not all they did. The Bible says in addition to receiving the word with all readiness in mind. That they also searched the scriptures daily. Whether these things were so. Now both of these components are important. Receiving the word with all readiness of mind. Is a good thing. If it's held in tension with the other thing which is searching the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. If you do either one of these two responses in isolation of the other, it will become dangerous to your walk with God. If all you ever do is just receive the word with all readiness of mind and you stop there, you're going to take in some things that are not going to be true. You're going to hear and receive things into your spirit that is not going to be right. If all you ever do is just receive with all readiness of mind, everything you hear, every preacher on the radio, every, every preacher on every podcast, all you do is just receive with readiness of mind. Brothers and sisters, you're going to get ingredients that are not healthy for your spiritual walk. And if that's all you ever do, you will become what I call a gullible hearer. If all you do is just receive the word with readiness of mind and you never do the other thing, which is search the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. But <clears throat> if all you do is get locked into that second portion where all you do is search your Bible to fact check the preacher, which is what some people do when they sit in a, in a Bible class or a church service. Man, I've watched them in conferences. I remember one specifically where a pastor made a claim in a conference about the certain dimensions of, I believe it was Mount Everest. And immediately people had their phones out, fact-checking about whether or not he got his his measurements accurate and proper. They were immediately checking to see if he was telling the truth or not. And you know what would have happened for many of the fact checkers? If he had been off an inch, yes, sir. 
they would have dismissed everything else that he had to say for the rest of the message because they would have been so distracted by that one little detail that he got wrong and all they do is use the word of God as an opportunity to fact check the preacher that is preaching the word of God if that's all you do you will become a critical hearer and you will never receive what it is that God is trying to speak to you and what it is that God is trying to say to you. But if somehow you can hold both of those two things in, in proper tension, you will neither be a gullible hearer or a critical hearer, but you will become a discerning hearer. You will readily receive the word of God, but you will also, amen, search the scriptures daily whether those things are so. And when, oh, hallelujah. And when you receive what it is that you hear and you check it through the ears of the word of God, then you will have the ability to discern what is healthy, what is proper, what is right in the word of God. So we do not want to become gullible hearers. We do not want to become critical hearers, but we want to have both of those two attributes held in their proper tension to where we come into the house of God. There is not a criticalness in our spirit where we are sitting there saying, well, preacher, let's just see if you can get it right tonight. No, when you walk into the house of God, amen, there ought to be an openness. There ought to be a willingness in your heart and spirit, amen, to receive the word of God. That when the word of God goes forth, that with all all readiness of mind. You're ready to hear and receive the word of God. How many came to church tonight ready to hear the word of God? Did you come with a ready mind? All readiness of mind. That means that when you get to the house of God, whatever you had to do, whether you had to pray, whatever you had to do, you, you got your mind in a condition and a place to where when you get to church, you were ready to receive the word. There's nothing in there pulling your attention away from the word of God. There's nothing in your heart and your spirit that's distracting you from the word. You have all readiness of mind to hear and to receive the word of God. How many has ever had your heart set on a particular meal in a particular restaurant you got there and they were closed? Or you got there and they were out of what you wanted to order. <coughs> Man, you had all readiness to eat that particular place, that particular dish. That's the way we ought to come to church on midweek. That's the way we ought to come to church on a Sunday. We ought to come with all readiness of mind. Our spiritual mouths ought to be watering for the word of God. There ought to be a hunger and a desire in us to hear what it is that the word of God has to say. No wonder the writer of Hebrews said, let us give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Brothers and sisters, if you pay attention anywhere, you ought to pay attention in the house of God. If you want to fall asleep anywhere, do it on the job, do it at school, but don't do it in Bible class. Don't do it during the word of God. God, if you pay attention anywhere, you ought to give the more earnest heed to the preaching of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in your life that you will ever hear or engage that will be more important than the word of God in your life. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. But after the word of God is preached, don't be that person who beholds himself in a glass and then walks away and straightway forgets what manner of man that he was. The second part to being prepared always to give an answer to them that ask a reason of the hope that is in us is not only to be prepared with the ingredients of the word, to have personal knowledge and relationship with the word of God. But you need to have an anticipation of what it is that you will be asked. In other words, you need to become familiar with the culture in which God has sent you to preach the gospel. As preachers, we need probably a broader range of knowledge in the word of God. But if you're in an area where the predominant uh, philosophy or, or uh, Christian denomination in your particular area is, is in such a way, then you need to be well informed in advance how to give an answer. If you're in a culture that's dominated by atheists, guess what? You need to do your best to be prepared to give an answer. Because you know that when you go into that classroom or you go into that particular place, that these kinds of questions are going to be asked of you. And when you go in, you need to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason. If you're in an area that's dominated by a particular false doctrine, then you need to be prepared, always being prepared to give an answer, to give a reason for the hope that is, that lies within us. Now there's three possible ways, and I'm going to go through them really quickly. Three possible ways that we can interact with the world in relationship to the culture. And in connection to our relationship with the word of God. The first one is isolation. The first response to the world I will call isolation. Isolation is the tendency, the tendency of many holiness-minded apostolics of which I am. Isolationism places strong emphasis on the biblical motif of separation. They take separation to mean that we should avoid all contact with the world whatsoever. And while I do consider myself a strong advocate of scriptural separation, I reject an isolationist approach to living in the world. The two metaphors, light and salt, that Christ used of Christians will not allow us to be isolationist. The metaphor of the light, no man takes a candle and hides it under a bushel. Lights are not meant to be isolated. Lights are not meant to be hid. What do you do with the light? You put it out in the open, in the middle of the darkness so that it can have maximum effectiveness. The metaphor of salt, salt cannot be and remain isolated in the shaker, in the box. 
if it's going to be effective, the only way salt works is salt's got to come out of isolation. It's got to come out of the container and it's got to touch the thing that it is intended to preserve. Brothers and sisters, amen, we should not fear interacting and engaging and participating in the world because if we are who we are, they will not affect us, but we will affect them. If we really are the light we say they are, say we are, then brothers and sisters, can you tell me what darkness that a light is afraid of? Can you tell me what darkness that a light is scared to go into? Can you tell me one time when darkness has ever suppressed light? If we are who we say we are, then we should not be afraid to go out into the world, to be involved, to connect, to interact with the world. We are lights. Yes, sir. And darkness can never overpower light. And if we are salt, then we too must touch the thing that we are intending to preserve, that we are intended to preserve. I just preached this last Sunday about Jesus, friend of sinners. The Bible says two almost mind-blowingly contradictory things about Jesus. Luke chapter 7 says he's the friend of publicans and sinners. It's absurd to me that Jesus would be a friend with tax collectors. That just don't make sense whatsoever to me. (laughs) But he is a friend of sinners. Luke 7. But yet Hebrews 7 says that he is holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners. How can these two things be true at once? He's holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners. How is it that we've been classically taught to be holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners? Bless God, you better not hang out with those people. But Jesus was both separate from sinners and friend of sinners all at the same time. And the whole time he was friend with sinners. He was holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Every time he had dinner with publicans and sinners, he was holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners. When the woman in the city whom all the commentators say was a prostitute, walked in to the Pharisee's house. Oh my God, you got to love this story. Pharisees were the ones that were complaining that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Uh, But there was a man who was a Pharisee that asked Jesus to dinner. Guess what Jesus did? Now, you got to hear this. Jesus had been eating with publicans and sinners. Guess who was blasting him for it? Pharisees. Right. All right. A few chapters later, guess who asked Jesus to dinner? A Pharisee. Right. <laughs> guess what Jesus did? Jesus went to dinner with the Pharisee. Jesus said, I'll leave with publicans and sinners and I'll leave with Pharisees and I don't care if they don't like one another. A Pharisee isn't going to tell me who I can eat with. Yes, sir. And I'll leave with a Pharisee just like I'll leave with publicans and sinners. But Jesus is in the house of Simon the Pharisee. This is incredible to me. And this prostitute from the city, when she hears that Jesus is at Simon's house, she walks up in 
the Pharisee's house. I don't know if she has something on him and she knows he ain't going to say anything about her being there or what it was. But this prostitute walks up in the Pharisee's house to get to Jesus. And she cries tears on his feet. And she drives them with the hairs of her head. And she takes oil from an alabaster box. Brothers and sisters, she's touching Jesus. She is kissing the feet of Jesus. She is so connected to him. She is so personally involved with him. And she is a sinner. And the whole time she's kissing his feet. Guess what? Jesus is still holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Because separation from sinners is not geography, it's lifestyle. You can be right in the middle of a crowd of sinners and still be separate from sinners. You don't know, oh my God. Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners with a sinner kissing his feet. So separation from sinners And being friends of sinners is not mutually exclusive concepts. So our first idea is we usually tend to isolate. The other extreme of how we handle the the culture is to assimilate. To become them. To act like them. To dress like them. To talk like them. To do everything like them. Brothers and sisters, that is not the biblical model of how we are to engage the culture either. It's not the will of God for us to go into isolation. It is not the will of God for us to go into assimilation. We are still supposed to come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. So what is the biblical model? The biblical model is not isolation and it's not assimilation, but it is insulation. It is to be so covered by the word of God, to be so covered in the love of God that we have the ability to go out as sheep in the midst of wolves, to go out into the culture, to influence it, to touch it, and to affect it. That's the reason why Jesus says that we are not of this world, but we are in this world and we will never be able to affect the culture as long as we are isolating in the four walls of a church and we cannot change the culture if we assimilate to the culture but what God is looking for is some Holy Ghost filled saints that are so well informed so well equipped that they can go absolutely anywhere in the world and they are always being ready to give an answer to every man that asks them a reason of the hope that is in them with meekness and with fear and my last point is that the Bible says according to Peter that we are to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope so in other words we are to live questionable lifestyles we are to live lifestyles that are so out of the ordinary 
We ought to live lifestyles in the midst of sinners that are so radical, that are so different, that they cannot help, get this, but to ask us a reason of the hope that is within us. When's the last time that, when's the last time that you've lived a life so questionable? on your job when's the last time that you've loved like jesus to such a way that somebody had to ask you how in the world is it that you love the way you love when is the last time we think of living a questionable lifestyle as oh my god i can't believe he's doing what he's doing because oh that's just shady but you ought to live a lifestyle that provokes the world to not be able to do anything but ask you why. What is the reason of the hope that is in you? According to Peter, we are not to go out and cram it down their throats. Paul says in Timothy that we are to live quite and peaceable lives. It's not the will of God for us to turn into the Westboro Baptist of Pentecost. God doesn't want us holding God hates anybody kind of signs it's not the will of God for our church to be known for the church that pickets everything that boycotts everything but we are to live in such a way in the world that forces them to say what is it that's going on with you that's different than everybody else God wants you to live a questionable lifestyle a lifestyle that's so radical and so powerful that they have no choice but to notice and get this, he didn't say we ought to go out and start just giving random, random answers. No. He says we are to always be ready with the answer right. when they ask right. Right. of us the reason of the hope that is in us. The reason why we become so frustrated often in evangelism is we're trying to ask questions they ain't answering or, or they ain't asking. We're trying to answer questions they are not asking. We're trying to force answers down their throat that they do not have an appetite for. Check this out. And we try to force some kind of gospel gangster agenda on people that have no interest whatsoever. That's not the way the gospel works. We are to live in the world in such a way that as salt and light, we create a thirst and an appetite for the gospel. And we go on our job. We're not the person that goes on our job, amen, wearing uh, hats that says, honk if you love Jesus and t-shirts that have all kinds of Christian. You just walk in and do your job. And when everybody else is freaking out over the stock market, you're walking in with a, with a pep in your step, with a smile on your face. And when they know everything in your life is going wrong and you still walk in with the joy of the Holy Ghost bubbling up out of your spirit. And they know something's different about you. They're going to eventually come around and say, hey, I know you're going through some stuff, but you're happy every day you come to work. Can you please tell me how you do it? And when they ask, you are ready with an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yes. Yes, sir. Oh, hallelujah. I got an answer for you. I got an answer for you. And the answer is the gospel. The answer is Jesus Christ. We are to be ready always to give an answer when they ask us. Too often we as Christians are giving answers that we have not created, for which we have not created a question. We have to live in the world in such a way 
that there is a noticeable difference in the way we live and the way we act. And I'm closing with this, and I'm sorry if I've been too long-winded. I'm closing with this. I've asked my, the church that I pastor repeatedly, what is the most important word in Acts 2.38? And many of them will say the name of Jesus or repent or be baptized. And I always tell them the most important word in Acts 2.38 is then. <coughs> then Peter said unto them, when did Peter say unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? When they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Their question came before Peter's answer. Peter preached in such a way. Peter lived in such a way that those that crucified Messiah had no choice but to say, what do we got to do to be saved? And when they did, Peter was ready with the answer. We lead with what we should be concluding with. Acts 2.38 is not the starting pitch. It's the close of the sale. The thing that ought to bring them to the moment of question is that your sins, your life, is the reason why Jesus was crucified and died on the cross. And when they heard that they were personally responsible, their sins were personally responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross, they were convicted in their hearts. Then and only then did Peter say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. We need to live questionable lifestyles. Lifestyles that causes people to ask what is the reason of the hope? Why is it that you have the kind of hope that you have? And when they do, we will be ready to give an answer. Thank you for joining us today. We pray you have been encouraged. If you would like more information about Medora Pentecostal Church, you can check out our website at www.medorachurch.com.